I'm Andy Murray, the Exec Director of the Major Projects Association, and I'd firstly like to thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast, uh, which is one of a series of discussions on why race matters in the world of major projects. Once again, joined by Gary Young. Uh, Gary is a sociology professor from the University of Manchester, as well as being an author, broadcaster and journalist, having previously been editor-at-large for The Guardian. If you've listened to the first podcast in this series, you may recall that Gary and I grew up in the same town at the same time and went through the same education system. So our backgrounds are pretty similar, except that Gary is black and I'm not. So this particular discussion, we'll explore our experiences from growing up and entering the world of work and how they differed based on race. In doing so, we will address the topic of white privilege, among others. Gary, a very warm welcome. Good to see you again, Andy. So Gary, I thought I'd start off by a um, bit, of, bit of context. So we both grew up in, um, in a new town, uh, Stevenage, uh, which is in Hertfordshire, just north of, uh, of London. Perhaps uh, given that uh, um, you're a professor of sociology, you're probably better qualified than I am to just give it a little bit of background in terms of the demographics and so on of, of Stevenage at the time. Well, yeah, Stevenage was created the same year as the NHS and with the same kind of zeal you know, the, the, um, Lewis Silkin, who was a uh, town minister at the time, who I've since discovered was a descendant of Lithuanian Jews, Lewis Silkin. But he said, um, people will come from all over the world to see what we have done in Stevenage. And it was about creating not just a new town, but a kind of a new person. Uh, um, significant bits of London had been bombed. Uh, housing was the number one issue uh, for Britons when polled after the war. And Stevenage was a response to that. And, but it wasn't just about uh, bricks and mortar. They decided that there, that there would be these kind of small communities with a sort of village feel, that there would be um, people would have gardens front and back. It was 100% council housing at the beginning. Yeah, and we had all cycle paths everywhere. Which, cycle you know, paths everywhere. Yeah. You were able to cycle anywhere. It was the first um, uh, pedestrian shopping centre in Britain that the Queen opened, which is why it's called Queensway. Um, and um, uh, and so there were, and and so my my memory of it. So um, I was born in '69, so it was still relatively new. Mm -hmm. relatively new for a town um given that i mean they were still building bits of it and um was <clears throat> first of all nobody almost nobody's parents came from stevenage almost mm -hmm. um that i had one friend whose mum went to the school that we went to actually but otherwise most parents were f usually from london uh so most kids uh supported West Ham, Arsenal, Tottenham, and there was a kind of, an, but it, they weren't picked out of a map like I did, because my mum was from Barbados, so I picked Liverpool, and my other brother picked Tottenham, and another brother picked Derby, just like... Yeah, well, the teams you know, were dominant at the time, I guess. Yeah, it was yeah. the time, whereas my friends, you know, their, their dads were West Ham fans, born and bred, you know, they used to play around the corner, or Tottenham, or wherever. Um, and um, uh, so there was, so there was that. Pretty much everybody's house where I lived was exactly the same mm. in the area that I lived in. You knew exactly where the toilet was, the same place that your 
Yeah, <laughs> Very true. Um, and um, and then there were the things that I realized. It was overwhelmingly wide. Mm-hmm. And then the things that I realized later, um, I, you know, I didn't realize it now, but that at the time, but there were no no-go areas in Stevenage. Now there are no ghettos, or or you know, you, you're absolutely right, and and this is a reflection that 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 I have as well. Although it was overwhelmingly white, um, mm. multicultural is the wrong term, but that mix of people from different areas um, mm. meant that there wasn't really a. a you know, I didn't feel that there was a, a dominant culture as such, and I wasn't really aware of that until I moved away, where I, yeah. I bumped into people that were. You know, um, that, that had a very strong identity from the place where they came from. Um, yeah, no, there was a very loose identity, and there was also um, there was little to tie you to the place. So that kind of when people came to Stevenage, like if you did a French exchange and people came to Stevenage or a German exchange, you would take them to Cambridge. Like there was nothing sort of to see in Stevenage. You take them to Cambridge or yeah. London. I remember when I went to university in Edinburgh, walking over George IV Bridge and feeling a bit robbed. And I was walking over the George IV Bridge. There was a Edinburgh Castle to one side. There was Arthur's Seat to the other side. There was Col- Carlton Hill to the other side. Blenheim Palace down the road. From, and I was like, God, to grow up in this sort of monumental beauty yeah. And Stevenage wasn't ugly, it just kind of, it, you didn't really have a sense of being anywhere in particular. It, it didn't really even feel like, of course, it didn't have a particular accent, it didn't have a particular attachment. It was a very, but some things did come with that, which meant you couldn't tell anything about anybody from where they lived. If somebody lived in Chells or Broadwater, you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, well, you must be kind of posh or you must be this or you that kind of um, there was a leveling effect. And I did a, I did an article for Branta magazine. And um, through doing that article, I went and interviewed a number of people who I knew. And it was really kind of intriguing to me. Because things have moved on now largely because of Thatcherism and selling council houses and so on. How many professional people, teachers um, in particular, who moved to Stevenage for the council housing? Mm-hmm. It was good council housing. Um, you know, these were people with um, university degrees or uh, postgraduate diplomas, or these were kind of educated people who kind of in the 70s thought, well, Stephen, it's a nice place to raise a family. Every now and then there would be one secondary school that was not doing so well. Um, Shepelbury at one stage, Shells mm-hmm. at another stage. But generally speaking, all the schools were fine. None of them were brilliant. You know, very few. If you went, if you went to Oxford and Cambridge from Stevenage, you got in the papers. Yeah, and that's something that I want to explore at, at some point. You know, in in, in our conversation. So, um, you know, some, some stats in terms of our our school. So, 180 kids um, entered the school in what what's now called Year Seven, but we called it the first year back back then. But 180 kids, so six forms of 30, and 
of those, only about 30 uh, went on to the sixth form. Mm. Um, and then by the upper six, that whittled down to about 15. And, and, and just five um, from that 15 went on to university. Now, that's not a great progression into, into higher um, education. Now, I've often wondered whether that's reflective of the time. And I know fewer people were going to university you know, back in the, uh, in, in the mid to late 80s. Um, but also, if that's just reflective of the fact that Stevenage was largely sort of working class or sort of lower middle class or these sort of um, emerging sort of professional uh, classes. Um, but, but certainly, you know, when we you know, get onto a discussion about, you know, white privilege, for me, it did feel like with that when I then later went into um, you know professional world, that you know I was I was you know bumping into people where they you know grew up in places where there was an expectation that they would go to university yeah. and and you know it was just different to to the experiences I had. That said, I don't feel it ever held me back um, at yeah. all. So, you know, I, I progressed really well in, in, in the early yeah. stages of, of my career and got promoted quite rapidly and, and ended up then setting up my own, my own firm. It was only later that uh, I came across, um, you know, a, a class as a, as, as a, as a barrier, but, but that's not necessarily the same as perhaps the experiences you had when you, you know, went through university and entered the world of work. Well, I mean, it's, it's funny you should say that because the stats from my school are very similar. Um, and I think it was partly about when, um, I think I'm a little bit older than you, is that right? I'm we would be in the same school year, so I was June of the, of, of, you know, 69. Yeah. So. Um, that there were, um, we would have left school, we would have got to uh, 1985 or 1984, that would have been when we were 16. Yep. Through to kind of 86, 87. And there were jobs. And so people would leave to get jobs. And this was a period, this was a particular period in the British economy and the working class. There was Harry Enfield's loads of money. That's right. And kind of you saw his iteration in Stevenage quite a lot. So there was a, a the the elder brother of a friend who was out of love would be too strong a word, but out of concern, certainly, was trying to persuade me not to go to university. And what he was doing was, he said, look, there's two years when you're going to be in college, you'll be earning, uh, at sixth form, you'll be earning this much. Then there's three years where you'll be um, at university and you'll be earning this much and you'll have these promotions. Mm -hmm. And he did the sums and he said, you're going to be like x thousand pounds out of pocket and i remember this distinctly he says that's before you even think about overtime and um you know he was saying look there's there's money out there and i remember a couple of my friends who did leave at 16 kind of chiding me needling me you're a kid you know you've got no money we ask your mum for money i'll get my own money and and they were smart they might have gone to university they could have gone to university but it wasn't it wasn't a thing and that kind of um, um, in terms of the kind of theme of the book podcast one of the things that was interesting f on reflection for me is that because Stevenage was young there were no 
long-standing institutions. And because everyone was an immigrant, not from abroad, but from somewhere else, almost everyone, there was that kind of, that um, notion of reinvention. You could kind of, you could try kind of something new maybe. And that kind of, it, within that space, being black was kind of, for a lot of stuff, just kind of one other new thing. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I, you know, it was, it was one way of being different. It was a particular way and it had a particular effect. But I remember really clearly one summer, my mum used to run a summer play scheme at Shepelbury Park. And I must have been about eight. And I was with my older brother, who must have been about 12. We were sitting with a bunch of other kids talking about what we wanted to do when we grew up. And we went around and, you know, it was footballers and hairdressers and beauticians and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I want to go to university and be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And the collective response was, you fancy ponds. And, um, and, um, and it's because, notwithstanding our teachers, who were a different kind of breed anyway, who mm-hmm. wanted to be a teacher, um, none of us knew anyone who'd gone to university. That's right. I mean, uh, I remember having similar conversations when I said I wanted to do that. That's partly because I didn't actually know what I wanted to do at that age. So it just seemed a logical thing just to carry on learning. Um, but I remember, you know, all my mates, you know, taking the, uh, you know, the mickey out of me for, you know, being posh. You know, yeah, you said we all we all had the same houses, <laughs> you know, we had the same background, but but I was the posh one because I wanted to go to university. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, very. And all of those kids were white, mm. and it's kind of, um, um, yeah. But I might as well have said, I'd like to learn how to fly without, you know, just on my mm. own my arms because we didn't know anyone who could do that either it was a it was a kind of it was an odd thing to say mm-hmm. and I just happened to not realize that because my mum was a teacher and it had been hammered into us because we were a particular type of immigrant mm-hmm. you're going to university I didn't realize until that moment that it was kind of odd it was something that you you might want to be careful who you shared it with mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting, but there is, there's, um, uh, which speaks to another thing, which I think I mentioned to you before, and I keep wanting to interrogate, which is that, um, Stevenage has had a very small black population, Hmm. but from that population, it's most famous sons, and they have mostly been boys, men, have been black. Mm-hmm. Hamilton, Ashley Young. That's right. Um, it's had two black mayors. It's had a black chief of police. Um, Giles Torreira, who um, won the Laurence Olivier Award and was in Hamilton. He's just got a book coming out soon. Um, Roland Butcher, who I think was the first black person to play for England and who was in at Shepelbury School with my aunt. And so, quite unselfconsciously, I think, I mean, it's a massively disproportionate amount of black success. Mm-hmm. From a, 
yeah, yeah, for it's from a you say not not a big you know, population within yeah. Stevenage. Yeah. Um, uh, it must have been doing something right, and I wonder the degree to which is because it didn't have because it didn't have long-standing institutions. Mm. There was quite a lot of racism, and we'll get onto that in a minute. But it didn't have the institutions in which it could embed. Nobody could really say, "Well, we've never done that before," or "We've never had anyone like you do this before," because they hadn't done. You know, they'd only been around for 30, 40 years. They hadn't done an awful lot at all. And so, um, and in that space, you know, all, all sorts of weird little things can kind of, um, uh, can grow because it is a, it's a remarkable record, really. It really is. And, and I think you mentioned earlier, you know, effectively we were all immigrants in terms of coming from other parts of the, uh, the country at the time. And uh, it, it, it was different, you know, and it was only, when I moved away that I realised how different Stevenage was to, to the rest of the UK and you know perhaps we'll we'll move on to that. Um, you, you talk about that you know that there was racism within you know Stevenage um, and I, I lived um, next door to a, a mixed race family um, so, so I did get to see it firsthand in terms of you know the we went to the same junior school so you know i did see taunts at lunchtime and in the playground and, and so on uh, and then there was the, you know the odd bit of um, you know it's not graffiti as we would you know, see it today but you know on their the fence around their garden you know sometimes there's something being written on it and, and so on but that wasn't the same uh um experience i had when i went down to brighton where i then started to bump into people who were overtly racist you know that were uh, using uh, racism as a as almost as a lever to get dominance or, or power over others and i wasn't seeing that in in stevenage i wonder if your what, what your experiences were you know were, were they similar because obviously i'm i'm observing from a different perspective than than you would be um at, at that time um yeah i mean i uh, in my first book um about traveling through the deep south the first chapter is about growing up black in stevenage mm -hmm. um and I, I i wish i could remember what the last group was called but i'd split people into three groups and the first was called the welcomers and there were just people who welcomed us we lived in the house that we lived in because a woman next door who read the daily mail and had all sorts of weird views about immigrants and ireland mm -hmm. and but was also offered to warm the milk for my mum's, uh, my middle brother, I wasn't born yet, and was a beautiful neighbour, wonderful woman, generous woman, whose kind of sense of humanity overrode whatever she was reading in the papers. Mm. And there were quite a few of those. And then there was another group that I called the tolerators. And they kind of, they tolerated you. So long as you didn't, insist too much on anything then you were okay so long as you didn't step out of line and they would kind of say things sometimes like oh i bet it's not as kind of um i bet it's not as cold as this where you come from you know you mm. just come from down the road yeah but no, really where do you come from or they would insist that you were as british as they were and there's no difference between you and them. And it kind of really didn't matter because you didn't have a say. Mm. And um, 
and they would kind of put up with you, but there would be the kind of racist jokes you would have to sort of tolerate. Oh, Gary's all right. You know, I don't mind, I don't mind you, it's the other lot. All of yes, that. yeah, so coming across as banter, but it's not banter though, is it? Yeah, and then there were the despisers. That's what I called them in the book. And they were really awful. And they were kind of out now. There was a family at the top of the road who just used to scream abuse at us. There was this moment when my eldest brother got his finger trapped in the door. And it was still the days of the um, kind of group phone line. The, I can't remember what you call it, but the, the party line. Yes. My mum went on the phone and the guy up the road who we always called Grumpy was on the line and my mum said, I'm really sorry, my son just had an accident, I just need to call an ambulance. And he said, you bloody people, you come here and you wanna do this and you wanna, and my mum said, I, I, honestly, I don't, my brother is screaming bloody murder. His, his finger's mm -hmm. literally hanging off. Um, they sewed it back on. We're all screaming, she's got three kids, one 10, one nine, one five. And she can't get this guy off the line. So she has to leave us in the house with my brother and his finger and run up to the phone and call from a phone box. There is an interesting addendum to that story, which is that years later, nothing was ever said. We just never dealt with that guy again, but he carried on, he lived there until he died, probably. I was doing my O-level technology. Somehow he heard about this. I'm not sure how, must have been. My mum was quite a bragger, so I'm sure. She, and that I was making a metronome and he had a little woodworking um, unit in his garage. Mm -hmm. And he insisted on making a case for my metronome. And, and, um, and it, I think it was his way of saying sorry. Mm -hmm. I think it was quite moving and that what had happened in between times because on one hand we were a single parent family quite messy garden three boys we were painstakingly polite we did really well in school and we didn't turn out to be the caricature that they had been reading about and watching on television because this was all during the Notting Hill riots in the mid seventies, the Brixton riots and Toxteth and all that kind of stuff. And so they had to kind of square their understanding of that with us. And this was this man's, who I had never exchanged a word with because I was only four when it happened, of him trying to make to, amends. Some kind of karmic response was this mm. kind of metronome. So is he moving from that despiser group to the to the tolerator group or had he gone yeah, all yeah. To, the, to the welcoming group yeah. i mean people have to have the space to grow don't they and um um I, that doesn't mean that the people that they've wronged have to necessarily kind of usher that in but people i remember being very homophobic when i was at school hmm. it was a dumb thing i've grown out of it like people People do need the space to grow, which doesn't mean that you have to be grateful for them accepting your humanity. But it was, actually, it made me feel quite awkward, you know, sort of 15, 16, standing in this mm. garage, kind of trying to make small talk, which is difficult when you're 15 at the best of times. Um, but that, that, and there were more despisers than you 
would think, you know, and some of them in quite, you know, some teachers who I just knew, you know, and every now and then they would say something. Um, uh, some um, police, the, the people up the road who kept shouting at us, my mum called the police because they were threatening us. And a policeman came, this is the first time I heard the, the word ethnic minority, the word ethnic minority. Uh, um, and he said to my mum, you're an ethnic minority, so you're gonna have to get used to this kind of thing. And I said to my mum, what's an ethnic minority? And he said, she said, he thinks because we're black, we just have to put up with this. And then she called the police station back and she said, I asked for a policeman, you send me an idiot. I want a policeman. Mm. And then they sent another guy who was younger and he had a word with them and, you know, I didn't solve it, but it, it was, um, and that would have been 74, 75. Yeah, and it's interesting the, that you say that um, you're black, you just have to get used to it or you're an ethnic minority and get used to it and being that age when 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 that realization mm. came i was um uh, watching uh just one of the sort of the shorts on on uh, bbc uh, this week and it was a, a group of people talking about when they've had to have conversation with their children mm. about about race and that's not a conversation i've had to have with mine mm. in terms of you know, you're going to come into these situations where you're going to be put upon or, or abused. Um, but clearly your mum had to have that conversation with you then. And, and I assume you've had to have a conversation with your children, I guess, yeah. particularly when you were living in the US when they were growing yeah. up. Well, you'd have yeah. had to have conversations about how to interact with the police. <laughs> um, well, and that kind of, there was, I had an interesting conversation with um, some old school friends who were being about 2011. And I was back in Britain to cover the election. So 2010, it would have been. And they were, uh, we went out for a drink and we were all quite close to school. And they, um, it was really interesting. They, they kind of saying, how comes we didn't know any of that stuff that was in your book? How comes you, and they weren't accusing me of anything. They were just like, that was, quite a shock to us and how you know and I was like it just wasn't something that you would share there was this kind of parallel life that you had where in order to keep going and protect yourself you didn't just open up conversations about the kind of stuff that was going on around you unless someone happened to be there because um uh I guess because it was too painful, maybe too humiliating, but also you just think, well, I'm not sure you're going to understand. I'm not sure what response I'm going to get. Mm. I mean, it wasn't conscious. I was, you know, I was young, a teen, but that um, I hadn't even thought about it until they mentioned it. And then I thought, well, no, it's not the kind of thing that I would just kind of um, have just opened up about. You kind of learn to file it somewhere so that you could get on with your life really yeah and in terms of 
you know, a reflection I had from our first um, discussion, our round table, which included IJ, Erin and, uh, and June. And you summed it up at, at the end by saying that, um, uh, that, that businesses and, and societies is missing out because of racism. Um, and we discussed the, uh, the issue with people not putting themselves forward for promotion or the self-doubt that comes you know, from, from, uh, from, from being you know, racially abused and, and so on. And if the best talent's not getting to the right positions in, in whatever form, whether that's business or, or, or civil society and, and so on, then, then society you know, has a problem because it's not getting the full value from, from all its citizens. And the, the discussion that, you know, your recollection there uh, and, you know, the, the discussion we had last time round was that, that you're, you're living that, that problem. So you're, you're, you're affected by it, um, you know, whether it's day in, day out or, or, or regularly. But, but the problem is the behaviour of the white people, these despisers, as you were calling them in your in your book, that's that's the problem, um, or it's the the tolerant not doing anything about it, or the welcomers not seeing it. Mm. So you know what what can you know white people do to to address the problems? Because it's you know you know there's a lot of discussions and you know actions from you know from black people, black communities, but it feels to me that. We're missing a, a big part of you know the the problem which is the the behavior and action of, of white people so i guess when in the moments when i was most heartened and felt most confident was when white people who witnessed it stood up and so it ceased to be a question of a sectional interest is sort of like I'm defending myself, mm -hmm. but like, you know, if when a white person said you're out of line and uh, you know, you need to shut up that kind of in those moments, which were quite rare mm -hmm. that then, um, I, I too then felt emboldened because it stopped being a thing about me and became a thing about it, mm. about racism. That is not, uh, that is not a kind of behavior that we are going to tolerate. I'm not going to put up with that. You know, and I remember saying, um, I wanted, I, I studied French and Russian at university when I was, this woman put an ad in a paper saying that she was teaching Russian in Hitchin. So me and my mum went to see her and she said, oh yeah, no, I don't think you're quite right. I don't think you're going to do this. Now I have no idea. I didn't, I didn't experience that as a racial slight. I just thought, right. oh, it's not. But my mum did. And I think she probably had a better antenna for this stuff than I did. And she told the deputy head, Mr. Jones, at the time, oh, well, this happened. And he was like incandescent, you know, I'll put a bloody flea in her ear, you know, bloody, what, what, you know, what the hell? And I remember just thinking, oh, there, here's someone who kind of gets it, <laughs> you know, who's, yes. 
who's um and so there were teachers like that there were neighbors like that um who who kind of who stepped up um or who um and it didn't need to be actually in a specifically you, you wouldn't have to wait for something terrible to happen to feel confident about them mm -hmm. because they were kind of you had a sense that they were there for you and that kind of um uh so when you say what <laughs> what I'm not saying is what white people should do is befriend black people. Just be black people's friend. That's the, that's what. But, but that's there's that. the calling it out, though, isn't there? So as you say, there's turning it away the, from. There's a calling out when it happens, but then there's the reaching out before it happens, mm -hmm. which is different to kind of you know being kind of you know overly cloying or whatever. But just kind of how are things going for you. Um, uh, when at the Guardian, when a new uh particularly when a new black person came i would take him for coffee and i would just ask them how it's going and i wouldn't say let's you know let's talk black stuff and i wouldn't say how's it you know have you been racially abused or i'd just take him for coffee and and just see how they're doing and the the, the, the sense was you know if you need anything then just know that I'm here. Now, generally speaking, somebody should be doing that in a workplace for anybody who's new. But um, m making clear to, to black colleagues that um, uh, you can be an ally, which is a subtle thing. You don't want people walking around with big Black Lives Matter t-shirts on and kind of trying to kind of have a conversation with someone about James Brown if they don't like James Brown. That's kind of, that's not what I'm talking about. But that in the way that Mrs. Stilling, my next door neighbor, warmed the milk for my brother, in the way that some neighbors just looked out for us, which meant that when the crisis came, you knew where to turn. And um, there is something about offering a lifeline before someone's drowning. Um. It's, it's really interesting. These sessions have sort of made me reflect on on quite a few things, and in particular the the conversation we had with June in in the first session, because you know um, you know she, she recalled the uh, the account of, of the issue she had with um, the sponsor of a of a program that she was working on, and and as we discussed, then I, I knew that there were issues there. Um, and, and I just put it down to, you know, stakeholder issues and, you know, other priorities and, and, and whatever. There was a, a you know, um, it, it, in my mind, I had treated it as this person doesn't want this project to succeed rather than this person doesn't want June to succeed. But June reached out to me and we had conversations about it. And as you, you heard, she was very, uh, um, you know, really grateful to the support that not just I gave, but other people around you know, her gave her, but I was completely blind to that being a um, a, a racist issue. Mm. Um, even though I was able to provide the support to say, well, these are the sorts of things we need to be doing to get your stakeholder on board. Mm. But but at that time, I, you know, I I didn't consider it. I hadn't hadn't into my mind. But is there a case then that that we just need to be more aware and more you know a better antenna of the radar? As you said, your mum had. Um, yeah, well, so I think that. 
and I think we develop these things over time. And um, uh, which is a different way of saying, yes, we have to be more aware that this could be, that this could be an issue. Um, and if you know that you're working in a place where there are very few black people and black people are unlikely to progress, then just to have that as, um, uh, as a possibility and to kind of say to a colleague, and you don't have to be friends, you don't even have to like them, but to say, what do you think this is about? And kind of open it, open it up for them to kind of say um, or not say. I mean, I've had analogous situations because what we can't do is have people walking around feeling guilty and nervous and kind of s sort of, you know, t walking on eggshells. Eggshell like. Yeah. And that kind of, um, um, I've had situations at work at The Guardian where I've thought something or someone was being sexist. And and you know, generally, what I what I learned to do over a period of time, after first of all, not getting it, and then being silent, and then and then just saying to the person, the woman, first of all, are you okay? And then secondly, I I would usually come to them with a sense of I was thinking of doing this. And I just want to see if that would be a problem for you. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking of raising this with the editor or with this person. And if you would really rather that I didn't, I won't. But it won't come from you, it will come from me. And um, I'm trying to kind of, because one of the things that you're getting at, which is really true, is that you, being black, you have you have the burden of racism and then you have the burden of anti-racism that kind mm -hmm. of think, you know, that kind of, well, this is a problem. Why don't you fix it? <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, well, um, because, because I'm laboring under the problem myself. And so uh, finding ways to intervene, but we're not born knowing this stuff. We kind of learn it and, mm -hmm. and, one of the ways to learn it is actually kind of to ask. The worst thing can someone someone can say is, piss off, I'm fine. Or I don't want your help. And that's the worst thing that happens to you in a day, then, you know, then great. Yeah, so, so it's about, you know, having, like we've been doing through these sessions, you know, having the conversations and, and, and just um, reaching out to people as as you would through other aspects of their development or, or the support that might have been in their roles yeah and listening you know listening mm -hmm. to kind of listening more carefully than you might to kind of pick up because it's you know we're british we don't just come out my wife is american she just comes out and says it british people don't i often have to you know she'll come to me and say in her workplace, somebody said this, what does it mean? And then I decode it for her. I've never had that problem when I worked in America. They can't, you know, they pretty much say what they think. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, listening a bit more carefully, offering yourself, 
I'm kind of, and we discussed this in the in the previous podcast. You can't win every battle. Mm-hmm. If you try and fight every battle, you won't last very long, and that's true for everybody. And so, kind of um, uh, figuring out with with whoever it is, what should we do about this? What's the best way to go? Because otherwise, you can actually make people quite vulnerable. If you go, and I've seen this happen, you, um, at the Guardian, there was a moment where um, they ran something that the Muslim journalists were kind of unhappy with. They mentioned it to a white colleague who then went and said, you know, a lot of Muslims are really unhappy with this. She didn't say I'm unhappy with it. She mm-hmm. said, so then the person who did it then came to the Muslim journalist and like, what are you unhappy about? Why are you doing? And they're like, well, <laughs> you know, this would not have been the way that we would have introduced this. Uh, and one of the ways I've always found this, this kind of thing is to ask the open question. What do you think this is about? How can I help? Um, uh, what do you think the best way would be to proceed right now? And then to assist to be an ally, sometimes being an ally meaning that you go first because you can take the hit. Sometimes it means not going at all, but actually kind of keeping your powder dry and gathering more people mm-hmm. or gathering more evidence or seeing if it's a pattern or if the person involved just had a bad day that, you know, we have to tread quite carefully with this stuff. So, so Gary, it's um, in terms of that, how you know what what white people can can do you know this time last year was the uh, it's, it's, it's an anniversary this week of the the murder of um, George Floyd uh, and then the the reaction to that and you know the uh, people you know were coming out and and saying it's not right mm-hmm. and you know there were you know myself included I think there were lots of white people that wanted to say something but but didn't know how uh, or or you know were worried about you know coming across as virtue signaling or or inadvertently saying the wrong thing and potentially making things worse so how how do i mean some of that i think is perhaps um for want of a better uh, um, description sort of um, a lack of sort of racial literacy um and, and so, you know, being aware of you know the things you, you know, that are appropriate and inappropriate to say. But um, is it better to say something and perhaps get it wrong, um, or or not to say anything at all? What, what's your your thoughts? You know, how how can people step up and say this isn't right? Um, I, I you know I think that the um, this is something that I've learned. It's not particularly about. It's not actually exclusively about race at all. Actually, but kind of particularly since coming back from America I left for America when I was 33 and I came back when I was 45 so considerably older Mm -hmm. and senior and what I learned on my arrival was sometimes saying things is not actually the most useful way to go that kind of um, um, 
asking things, which you could say, well, that's saying things, but kind of um, um, going to a colleague after, let's say, after George Floyd kicks off, going to a black colleague and saying, I'm wondering if we shouldn't get something started here. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Um, or, um, and then just stand and listen to kind of, you know, to what, what they say. Um, and then kind of act, and then act around what they say. Um, I think that would be, would be a kind of um, uh, a good and useful port of call. I have a friend, my best friend actually, who I came back to Britain. He married a friend of mine and now lives in Harlem. Um, uh, he's a white guy. And um, we had quite a few conversations about his, you know, he's, he's my best friend. He was best man at my wedding. He's godfather to my son. I was the best man at his. Um, and he was talking about some of the things that were going on at his school and how some of the people who were saying certain things weren't people who he necessarily particularly liked or particularly, but, and he was kind of trying to, trying really hard to kind of get through that, to listen. And one of the things they did was they started a reading group. Um, the, um, uh, I think initially it was some of the white, some of his white colleagues. Um, they started a reading group and they, and he, he called me and he said, so, you know, what kind of books would you suggest? You know, and I was telling him. So other than your own, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I said, look, I'm taking a cut. Um, and, um, and I thought that was an entirely kind of sensible kind of, you know, way to proceed. And to kind of, um, you know, I said to him, um, well, you know, you, you're going to have to let it play out for a little bit. And one of the things you you have to bear in mind, which is very difficult, is that kind of your feelings are not the most important right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and however difficult it may seem, you have to find a way to not take any of this personally, not that he was fingered in any way for kind of wrongdoing, but that um, I said, you have to find a way to not take it personally. And I said, and and that's exactly what all of your black colleagues are doing every time they experience racism, is finding a way to not take it personally. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of new to you, but it's not to them. And, yeah, and, interesting. and it's really important that you understand that liking them is really not the point. You don't need to like them. That's anti-racism isn't about liking black people. You know, you, actually it's about kind of defending people you don't even know. Um, and the rights of people you may never know because it's the right thing to do. In, 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 you know, it's the same for kind of any progressive pause really 
Um, but that, you know, the, the people in question, and now I'm talking to they might be a real pain in the ass. They might be this, they might be that. But just as Marcus Rashford, Mr. Sitter, and deserves to be kind of on the terraces, deserves to be panned for that, him missing a city has nothing to do with him being black and he doesn't deserve to be panned racially. Mm -hmm. He deserves to be panned as a footballer, you know? So it's fine to be angry at Marcus Rashford. It's not fine to kind of racially abuse him. No. Because and, and in that respect, it does feel like, you know, reflecting on the year since George Floyd, that, you know, that it does feel that there's been a shift in sentiment, but at the same time, you know, as you say, what's happened to Marcus Rashford this week feels like, you know, we may have taken two two steps back in terms of, um, you know, people using things like social media platforms to just mm -hmm. hurl abuse at, at, at others just because of the colour of their skin. Uh, it doesn't feel like we've made much progress at all. Well, it took several hundred years to get things this bad. And if we think how recently, you know, my mum grew up in a colony. Mm -hmm. um, um, without the meaningful right to vote um, that was run by the Brits and the, you know, the big school was for the white kids and a handful of local black kids. It's not that long ago, you know, America was a slave state for about 300 years and an apartheid state for 100 years. It's only been a non-racial democracy for getting on for 60 years. So it's quite new. My, my father-in-law, who's African-American, grew up under segregation. If my kids want to know about what it's like to grow up not being able to eat in a certain place, they can just ask their grandparents. Yeah, it's not that long ago. Very recent. And people do kind of think, but we had... I'm not saying you're saying this, but we have Black Lives Matter. And now this is still happening. Well, it's, you know, it's a very long game, you know, and the words of Martin Luther King, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. So Gary, you talk about your experiences in, in, the, in the US. Um, so how much of what goes on there with the likes of, you know, George Floyd and the Black Lives uh, Matter, um, whether it's the movement or just the, the sentiment behind it to, to what happens in, in the UK? The, the, there are important differences. Um, black Americans make up 12% of the population. It's a significant number of people. Mm. Black Britons, if we're just talking about people of African descent, make up about 2-3% of Britain. That's a smaller percentage of a smaller number of people. Mm -hmm. um, African-Americans in particular have been there for centuries and they have institutions that are centuries old. Um, America is a more lethal place, generally. The last book I wrote was about all the kids that got shot dead in one day, which was 10 on the day that random day that I picked. The average was seven, it went up to nine. Uh, a couple of years okay. ago. So it's, it's, everything is more lethal. So then it's racism is more lethal. 
Um, um, and so what you can't do is just, and, and quite importantly, and this may sound like a technical historical point, but it's really not. America had all its segregation and bigotry, well, not all of it, but it had it at home in America. Whereas most of Britain's most egregious forms of anti-black racism place abroad. Mm -hmm. In Kenya, you know, where they really did torture people. Uh, South Africa, until the birds kicked them out. Zimbabwe, as, or Rhodesia as was. And so, and America's civil rights movement took place at home. Whereas at Britain's civil rights movement took place in India with Gandhi or in Ghana with Kwame Nkrumah. And so there is a kind of level of experience and, and self-education that doesn't exist in Britain that does exist in America. There is more scope. Nobody in America will deny that there was a thing called segregation. Whereas in Britain, people will say, well, we didn't do that. Mm. You did, but just not at home. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and, and those things make a, a really, really big difference. But then there are similarities. The disproportionate likelihood. And this is where we get to the kind of nitty gritty of what, of how racism operates systemically. It's a series of probabilities. So it's not that, you know, I've done quite well for myself and um, um, I'm fine. I'm doing better financially than most of the people that we grew up with. As, mm -hmm. as um, so when they hear someone like me talking about white privilege, they kind of, I actually get why they would be pissed off. And I've, I have a quote for you that I'll give you in a minute from a woman in America that I met. But that the way racism works is that I've always been more likely to be unemployed, to be stopped, searched, convicted, longer sentence. Um, uh, even as a professor, I'm more likely than the other white professors. So whatever level I'm at, mm -hmm. still disproportionately um, uh, affected. And it's those, and those probabilities, they're not the same in Britain as they are in America. Some are worse and some are better. But um, it, that is what translates which is why Britain can, British people, particularly young kids who've been stopped and searched and so on, can see George Floyd and not think there for the grace of God go I, police are killing, because police don't kill people at the rate in Britain that they do in America. But yes, I know where that's coming from. I feel that sense of injustice, a similar injustice could, or an analogous injustice could happen to me. Um, um, the quote that I wanted to read you was from a woman who I interviewed before the Trump election in 96. She was a white working class woman. And she said, white privilege is like a 
well, no, I start a bit higher up. She says, people are afraid that they're stupid. The whole PC thing, racism, sexism, all that stuff is being stupid. All these isms are ignorance. And people don't feel racist, but they feel marginalized because of their ignorance and they don't want to offend people. And then she went on to say, white privilege is like a blessing and a curse if you're poor. White privilege pisses poor white people off because they've never experienced it on a level that they understand. You hear privilege and you think money and opportunity and they don't have it. There's protected, there's protections for women and minorities and they have advocates, but there's no advocates for poor people. And there's something to that, mm. of, of, um, which is not that white privilege isn't a thing, but it comes, becomes a very hard sell when you're saying to somebody, you're unemployed, you're in poor housing, uh, you're in poor health, and you're privileged. Um, particularly if it's coming from me, who is employed and in good housing, and, um, and telling them that they're privileged. And so we have to be very careful about how we use these words if our aim is to bring people with us, as opposed to kind of freeze them out. Because they kind of, um, they shrink, you know, they kind of like, well, um, I don't want to say anything wrong. And I feel like I'm wrong already. And you're saying I have stuff I don't have. And, you know, one of my jokes when I'm doing talks is that kind of, um, to give a sense of what I mean by kind of collective identities and why, how this could be, as I say, look, People say we won the war, even if they didn't fight, even if they weren't born. Mm -hmm. People say um, we won the World Cup, even if they didn't play and even if they wouldn't, weren't born. But when you say, well, who colonized people? They say, well, that wasn't us. We weren't there. We weren't born. And it's like, either you have a collective identity or you don't. Either you are claiming these things as an English person or you're not and you can't just claim the good stuff and pretend that the bad stuff's got nothing to do with you and so while you might not have the wealth and all of that now there are things that you're you, there were there are things that you benefited from as a result of being white because believe it or not it could be worse you could be black mm -hmm. And, and still have all of these problems and, you know, so it could be worse. So, I mean, that sort of, um, like you say, it's not looking at individual cases or, you know, because it's easy to, you know, to, to then start discussing the, the outliers or the, or, or the isolated um, incident. But, but on average, as you're saying, that there is a significant difference there in terms of likelihood of, you know, say just taking crime and justice, the likelihood of going to prison and also then the, the likelihood of, uh, of, of longer sentences is, is one that's you know, well proven. And, and, you know, that um, that's the essence of where the, if you like, the, the, uh, um, the academic term white privilege comes from. So is there a better way of describing um, how that translates into the workplace if we get it back to the world of major projects you know, where we can you know 
um, talk about the positive things that we can be doing um, so that we make you know we a, do the right thing but but also so that you know projects businesses and, and society overall gets you know best value from all of its talent and, and being more inclusive in, in that way is there is that is an alternative term we just need to be using Gary to, instead of white privilege um no and I, I, it's not like I have a, I think that's a real thing I'm not um uh, I I just think it can be a hard sell depending yeah on, I, I can see you know it's divisive and um uh, but that kind of my feeling is, and we touched on this, um, I think it's where we ended in the previous conversation, is that the most compelling case, unfortunately, isn't the moral case, but the business case. Mm. That kind of, um, um, so long as you are making the moral case, then people may bristle and like, well, you're no better than me, you, you know, and I don't feel, so I don't feel that, and um, um, and to say that your business will be better, your work will be better, your capacity will be increased if you take this on. Um, that this isn't just about being a better person or being; it's actually about. Um, being a, um, a, a, a better practitioner. And that uh, I'm always reminded of when I was at university in the student union, there was a barman who had a drink problem and we, had, we got someone in to talk about it, with, not with the barman, with them. And they said, the thing you can't do is talk to him about his drink. Because it's none of your business how much he drinks what you, your relationship to him is as an employer. And so what you can talk to him about is his inability to do his job, the mistakes he makes, the this and that. That you have, now if that, if that veers into alcohol and if you have a plan for him that kind of might help that, then great. But what you can't do is say, look, Bob, from the goodness of your heart, say, look, Bob, uh, we're prepared to pay for you to go on a, a Alcoholics Anonymous retreat for a week. And, you know, he's well within his rights to just say, well, piss off, it's nothing to do with you. Um, which doesn't mean that that's my, not where you end up. And so you kind of, I think the best place to start is where people are at. Um, and, and this is where what, one of the things that really helps with these conversations is data. Um, look, your team, it looks like this, that th this is where black people are in your team and they're not getting any better. This is what the pay level is like in your team and it's not getting any better. This is the number of people, this was a real issue in journalism. You're very good at recruiting non-white people. There's no problem there. But then they come in and then they leave really quickly. And I wonder if you thought about why that is. And to make it clear that, that these you're losing good people, and um, particularly if you're doing things internationally, then it's not a good look. When yes, you... it's um, it's a really interesting point, and it's something that uh, the Major Projects Association is um, uh, through through Manon Bradley, our development director, that's 
um, running a, a scheme to establish a means to collect that data um, at a project level on, on major projects because one of the challenges that, that we see is that you know our members you know um, pretty much all of them uh, I suspect it would be all of them uh, have EDI um, you know policies and objectives and schemes uh, and strive to be you know a diverse um, employer you know you know have a diverse workforce but major projects are not delivered by a, a single organization you know, so there'll be people you know uh, you know maybe from you know 50 60 70 organizations involved in, in a major project and so if you take the project as a whole irrespective of how those people working on that project are employed um, we don't know no one knows what the opportunities and progression are of people on those projects you know depending upon their background and, yeah. and that's something that you know we're, we're really keen to collect that data because what you don't necessarily want is the major project has lots of diverse organizations involved but actually it's only the you know the white people or or, or only the men um, yeah. that get to work on the the most interesting or the the most rewarding projects so um yeah, you're right i mean getting that data i think will will help and, and then it puts that focus back on that business case as well, you say yeah. you know yeah and it gives you something concrete to talk about otherwise you're talking about views and attitudes and feelings and so on um as opposed to um uh, as a trade unionist uh, i was a trade unionist and we found out a particular moment that the two lowest paid people in the building were the only two black women who worked on the building who worked in that department and um that gave us something to talk about you know and if we'd found out that the two best paid people were black that would have given us something to talk about or think about that um i did a project on knife crime and there were no stats about who was dying from knife crime mm. And so I thought, well, how do we even know what we're talking about? This is when I worked at The Guardian. And so we put in a series of freedom of information requests. And what we found was really, really interesting. Um, and it gives an example. You think you know what you're talking about, but you don't. When it came to knife crime, um, most of the kids who were killed by knives weren't black. In London, they were. Mm -hmm. And what you saw was that the whole conversation was being shaped by what happened in London and that knife crime was understood as a crisis of black masculinity. And that was actually leaving out a lot of white kids who were dying from knife crime. Mm. Um, and that there was something specific happening to black kids in London that wasn't happening outside of London. And it gave us a much more sophisticated, a sufficiently sophisticated understanding that the findings were read out in Parliament and we were invited to, to speak to the Attorney General to tell him what we knew. And they were facts that he could have had if he'd wanted them. But that, um, and so data is absolutely crucial. Um, but it also, I, I can't emphasize enough, the more you can move away from how people feel and guessing at their motivations, which you can never 
I don't know why I do half the stuff I do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, uh, why did you pick that person for the job? Well, I think he's better in his job. You know, and that may be a heartfelt, serious, completely benign view. It's only when you can say, do you realize that the last nine people you thought were better for the job were all white guys? And that in five instances, you had the chance to choose someone else. And I'd just like you to just, I'm not saying anything apart from that. I just want you to think about why that might be. My brother, who is a um, uh, TV executive and uh, has been quite senior, he ran the Travel Channel in America and elsewhere. One of the things that he swears by as a manager is, um, is some kind of targeting that unless you put numbers on the table, people will always say they're trying their best, but you can't find the staff. If you say, by X year, this, this, is, this is the proportion of non-white graduates in civil engineering who were coming out of university. This is the percentage of people who we're employing. Within 10 years, we want to get it up to that level. But then you have something kind of concrete and logical and kind of um, um, that you can really kind of work with and that um yeah he says in the absence of targets people always just shrug their shoulders yeah and and targets that's not necessarily the same as sort of positive discrimination so um so you're saying oh, overall if we were to take a snapshot of say major projects today uh, and then look to gain in say four or five years time we would want to see a significant uh, shift from it, it being underrepresented to being a better reflection of, of society as a whole, or as you say, the, the graduates coming through, mm. uh, you know, through, through the universities. Um, yeah, and you know, you'd have to have a pretty good reason to say no to that. I mean, what, what would be, do you know what I mean? What, what, why would you not want to do that kind of thing? Why would you? Yeah, there's, there's been a sort of a lot of work done, certainly over the last sort of four years or so, um, around sort of unconscious bias um, training. Um, you know, and a part of that is an understanding, for example, you said that, you know, if there was a, a scenario that someone, had, you know, either through a recruitment process or a, a nomination process for promotion might have done, you know, nine, nine white guys out of nine, you know, been put forward. But an element of that could just be through the, you know, the interview process or whatever it might be. There it is, it's easier for the interviewer to, you know, to connect with the interviewee and bring out their best parts. And, and that's what some of those, those, you know, those, those issues around that unconscious bias is. Um, have you seen any, any positive impact of that sort of unconscious bias or, or are there other alternatives we need to be applying so that you know that that the people being put forward either through recruitment or promotion you know, aren't being overlooked through just people not understanding mm. i mean to to be honest the challenge with things like that is that people become deeply cynical mm. 
about it. And it can often feel like um, <laughs> the people who are otherwise irritating you, managers, HR, whoever, are now going to put you in a room and tell you how racist they are. You know, having just did, having just refused your expenses or done that, done that, and that um, the challenge is, I think that there has to be some basis of trust within an organisation before you can have that kind of conversation. If the trust isn't there, you could have Martin Luther King himself could come and do the unconscious bias training. It wouldn't have any, it wouldn't, you know what I mean? People would st still regard it as a box ticking exercise. And sometimes it can be a box ticking exercise. And look, the moments when it works and when I think are when there's trust and people think it's real and they sense it's real from what they see around them. So if, if a workplace is unfair in a range of ways, and then it picks this thing as an emblem of fairness, then it probably won't work. Because people will think, well, you don't care about us. You don't, you know, I'm, I, I, I've, I've seen that happen. Um, but where people are confident that so it's it, it speaks to a deeper institutional mm. so there's sort of yeah we should sort of avoid if you like looking for that silver bullet um you know in terms of yeah. and it does seem as it's been put up as a as a silver bullet to resolve sort of selection promotion issues well it's not that it's it's not useful it's that kind of um on its own it will always be inadequate and actually could be counterproductive if the other things aren't working. Yeah. I mean, there are some things like, um, looking at CVs without the names on, mm -hmm. that makes a huge difference. That there is ample evidence that if you have uh, an African sounding or Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi sounding name, you are less likely to be called for an interview, less likely to get a job. Um, one of the contradictions, I knew that was coming. One of the contradictions in the Sewell report that recently came out that was commissioned by the government into racial and ethnic disparities was he talks about, but African children do so much better than Caribbean children at school. So it can't be race or racism. But what he didn't look at was, or what he didn't refer to, was the fact that those very African children, if they have African names, are X times less likely to be called for interview when, when they graduate from university. That black graduate unemployment and Pakistani graduate unemployment is off the charts. And so you have these people who've done everything right you know, taught bootstraps, gone through the system, done everything right. And then somebody takes a look at this and like, no, that's not going to be for us. Um, yeah, and, and that's an area where it's actually really simple and easy, um, mm. you know, fix is the wrong term, but, but action to take 
uh, you know, in terms of you know removing names and uh, and perhaps even gender from uh, from from CVs. Uh, it's uh, something that uh, you know it's it's very simple, uh, easy to do, and as you say, you can can remove. Um, Partly uh, an issue that uh, that's been well well proven. Carry um, mm. up. I'm aware of our of our time and uh, and uh, all the great input you've been uh, you know, providing us with these series of, of podcasts. Um, moving forward or thinking forward, um, let's assume that, that we'll have a conversation in say four years' time, um, and we'll be reflecting on things that we may have done over the previous four years uh, on this topic what what for you would success look like you know what 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 would be a good outcome you know what, what could could happen over the next four years over the next four years I would I would love to think that we could sit down and you could talk about a range of things that you've tried in the last four years and some sense of whether they worked or not and and that within the next four years because this stuff it doesn't happen overnight um that you would be able to be able to tell me what the problem is or where the problem is, not what the whole problem is, but that you would have sufficient data that you'd be able to say, this is, the problem is in recruitment, the problem is in retention, or the problem is in this factor. Because it's very difficult, if you don't know what the problem is, it's very difficult to solve it. And in the absence of the data, we really kind of, a lot of what we're dealing with is opinions and prejudice and yeah uh, sort of coming back to your knife example and and so on and that and i i, I have i think a, a, a good because there, there are these moments these windows of opportunity and this is one of them uh and the challenge is to keep it open as long as you can um uh while um we can figure out some of the things we can do because it will slam shut after there were some rebellions and riots in 87 as a result of those the scott trust which owns the guardian decided that there should there weren't enough black journalists so we didn't they didn't know what was going on nobody knows what's going on uh, and because it's a charitable trust not to work at the guardian specifically but the guardian would offer six bursaries to non-white, uh, primarily, to, well, to ethnic minorities and other people who would otherwise be discouraged from going into journalism. Mm -hmm. I was one of the first beneficiaries of that bursary. And I probably wouldn't have gone into journalism otherwise. I'd probably have sort of written the, the odd thing. Um, um, also in the year that I did it, was the guy who's now the chief leader writer at the Guardian. Other people who've come through that are working at the Guardian, working at the FT, working. Now, the counterfactual, what would they be doing otherwise? We don't mm -hmm. know. But we do know that they came, that's, that was the funnel through which they entered. That was a window of opportunity. In 1999, there was a McPherson report 
I think these things are contextual, not causal. But that was the year that Steve McQueen, Small Axe, 12 Years a Slave, mm-hmm. won an Oscar. Tribute to British artistry and filmmaking, things in the day. That was the year that he won the Turner Prize. It was pretty much the year that White Teeth by Zadie Smith came out. It came out in January of 2000. It's the year I got my column. It's the year Yasmin Alibi Brown got her column in The Independent. I don't think these things are entirely coincidental. Some of them last, some of them don't. The Guardian bursary is still, is, you know, still going uh, in a slightly different form. Um, um, kind of what, kind of almost 20 years later. So these are, but if you'd said in, let's say in 87, well, what would we be talking about in 91? It would have seemed like small beer. Maybe we can start a bursary. Mm. If you'd, in 99, well, what, you know, in 2003, what would we be saying in 2003? Well, these things are kind of bits and bobs, but they kind of, they, they add up and they move in the right direction. The year of the McPherson report, we had a meeting with Matt. It was when diversity became a priority at the Guardian, racial diversity. Gender diversity came slightly, slightly earlier. And um, we went to, um, and the editor was, yes, come and, come and talk to me about this. And we came with a series of ideas, but we also had some facts about, look, the, these, are, we, we got them from the Bureau of Circulation. These are the papers that black people and Asian people read. They should be reading The Guardian. You know, mm-hmm. I don't mean that they really should. I mean, it's a case that you make to the editor. But you know what? There's a higher percentage of them reading The Times. How does that make you feel? Mm. Now, of course, I mean, the editor of The Guardian, who I had and have a great deal of respect for, and, and who really took this on, but I think that that was part of a very compelling thing for him. Like, um, how can that be? We're the, you know, we are the champions of liberalism. We are, and, you know, they're reading the bloody times. Like, we, you know, yes, I can see now there, are, there is, there, are, there is more than just good works in this. Yeah, it's coming back to your business case point from earlier. And the, the data. And so, and this is a moment of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so we should seize it. Um, but we should seize it mindfully uh, and, uh, and not be too surprised if the earth is still turning in a similar way in four years time, but we've just managed to just shift it on its axis just a bit. These things take time. Yeah, and I think that's why you know, we're, you know, we're setting out within our strategic plan at the moment um, that we will you know, look at a number of things. Sustainability um, is another one. Um, and, and rather than having sort of an, an annual target sort of performance incremental uh, basis, we, we'll look to achieve something over the term of that strategic plan and and even if that achievement is just a progress towards you know a, a greater achievement then uh, you know i think we'll we'll look back and say you know we we've, we've achieved something that we were setting out to do 
Um, but but there's a lot to shoot at, isn't there? In in, in mm. this, you know, there's there's a lot that could be done, um, yeah. and it's uh, yeah. I think re reflecting on our conversations, Gary, it's, it's um, you mentioned it right at the beginning you know, with the conversations with your with your mum. It's about choosing those right battles. So mm. uh, some some time for us to think about, you know, what are those uh, for you know for the association and our members um, over the next four years, and and what's that progress towards. Uh, uh, that we can uh, we can achieve. Well, um, I'm going to wrap it up here because uh, I'm aware that we sort of put an amount of time in our diary for for this discussion, and uh, we've certainly used it all up. Um, you know, once again, Gary, really grateful for your time that you've taken for for these sessions, and uh, and 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 also the um, you know the, the thinking that you've um, given us, um, and, and we'll certainly be taking it all away. And uh, having a look, you know, with our members to see what sort of things we can be doing uh, as a as a project sector better than what we're doing today. <laughs>